This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Well, hi, everybody, and welcome to tonight's lecture, Research Updates on Parkinsonian Disorders with Dr. Irene Lidvan. My name is Luz Pinto, and I am the Events and Marketing Manager at the Stein Institute for Research on Aging and the Center for Healthy Aging at UCSD. Tonight's lecture is part of a lecture series called the Stein Lecture Series, where we invite researchers and clinicians who are experts in their field to share their knowledge and expertise with our community. Tonight's speaker, Dr. Irene Litvan, is the director of UC San Diego's Movement Disorders Center and the task endowed professor in Parkinson's disease. She has published over 145 peer-reviewed articles and has done studies in Parkinson's disease, Parkinsonian disorders, and movement disorders. So please join me in giving a warm welcome to Dr. Irene Litvin. Thank you, Luz, and uh, thank you everybody else for coming tonight. It is an honor for me to be in this series. So I am going to be discussing part of the things, themes that I do research on. One of my major themes has to do with uh, trying to make an early diagnosis and an accurate diagnosis of Parkinsonian disorders. So what I will be discussing is the definition of what a Parkinsonian disorder is, I will focus on Parkinson's disease and the changes that we have had over the past two years in the diagnosis of Parkinson's disease, the understanding that this is not just a movement disorder, it is a problem that occurs uh, there are many other problems that are non-motor that I want you to learn about. I want you to learn as well where Parkinson's disease starts and how it spreads, um, and as well to understand what are the earlier symptoms, as well as search for ways in which we can diagnose the disease earlier by uh, doing searching for biomarkers. And briefly, uh, therapeutic approaches. So it is very ambitious. So we're, you know, put on your seatbelt and let me know if it is too fast. So before talking about uh, all these things, I thought I should tell you who we are. So we are a group of movement disorder specialists and experts in several disciplines that are working together with a shared goal of providing edge personalized care to patients and uh, provide as well education for families and the best possible care with the possibility of patients to enter into therapeutic trials if they desire to do so. We are uh, six movement disorder specialists. We're going to be five as one is leaving. One of them works with pediatric cases. And we have a neurosurgeon as well as two fellows. Uh, we have as well a large group of 
uh, rehab uh, personnel. Here is just a short uh, sample, a small sample of those, as well as a social worker that works part-time. And we do research with a large group of investigators at UCSD as well as outside UCSD, internationally and nationally. What we do is clinical care, clinical trials, clinical and basic research, as well as community outreach and education, and this is part of what I do. Our mission is to translate innovative research into state-of-the-art comprehensive personalized patient care in movement disorders. Our vision is to enhance mind and body one life at a time through new science, new medicine, and new cures. So now that you know a, lo a little bit about us, let me go to the actual theme that is Parkinsonism. So what is Parkinsonism? So it is the presence of slowness. Slowness is a key feature. Without it, we don't have Parkinsonism. And slowness can be manifested by either a small movement or small movement in amplitude, as you saw here, or you can also see uh, slowness uh, as well in the movement itself. Here, this patient doesn't, doesn't look so slow, but this, the steps are very small and doesn't uh, move the arms. And that is not normal. It's not part of aging. This patient has tremor, and that is an one of the features that is important, but not the only one. The tremor in Parkinson's is a tremor that is addressed, but when the patient moves the arms, that tremor goes away. However, it may come again if you have a position that is uh, staying for a little while, and I'll show you that later. And the tremor can be in upper or lower extremities. And another feature is postural instability. So the feeling of loss of balance or falls. So the presence of either slow, slowness with either any of these other features, tremor, stiffness, or postural instability, only one of them makes what we call Parkinsonism. This is how we do examine the gait, so patient walks, and here is how we examine the balance. So we do the backward pull test, and normally the person doesn't move or gives at least one or two steps backwards, but this person kind of falls backwards without any kind of reflex. So now that we learn how we examine the patient and uh, how we describe what Parkinsonism is, let's go into Parkinsonian disorders. So Parkinsonian disorders are disorders in which Parkinsonism is a major feature. And we can divide them in two major groups. Secondary, that is secondary to a cause, for example, Vascular disease, several strokes can give vascular Parkinsonism, or it could be infections that can give uh, Parkinsonism. For example, postencephalitic Parkinsonism that existed in the 1920s, that was another cause of Parkinsonism, and there are others. 
or it could be neurodegenerative diseases. And neurodegenerative diseases are diseases in which cells die, and we truly do not know why they, the cells die in specific areas of the brain. So the neurodegenerative diseases that are Parkinsonian disorders are divided into major groups. Parkinson's disease, that is the majority of the disorders, and what we call atypical Parkinsonian disorders. So I would say that 80% at least of the patients that have a neurodegenerative disease have a par Parkinson's disease. As you'll see, um, there, are, there is a spectrum of how Parkinson's disease can present, and currently there is an idea that some patients do have the typical Parkinson's disease that I'll show you, but some others do present with Parkinsonism and dementia, what is called the dementia with Lewy bodies. And before they were considering completely two different disorders, and now they're starting to be considered as a spectrum of perhaps the same disease. And I'll explain this a little bit more. Then we have these atypical Parkinsonian disorders that are disorders that have characteristics that make them very different than Parkinson's disease, and I'll get to this in a few minutes. And among those is progressive supranuclear palsy, multiple system atrophy, uh, corticobasal degeneration, as I said, dementia with Lewy bodies that is included a question in both groups, and Disorders, all these disorders are sporadic. That means that there is no family history and occurs in just one person in the family, or they can be familial. And that can happen in Parkinson's disease as well and the, as in the typical Parkinsonian disorders. And what I'm giving you is just a classification according to the cause of the disease, all right? But nowadays, we have a more recent classification that is what we call the molecular classification. And that has to do with the proteins that accumulate in the brain. And that is very important. So in these diseases, for example, in Parkinson's disease, there is a protein that accumulates in the brain. In particular, in Parkinson's disease, is called alpha-synuclein. But you can see that alpha-synuclein is not only in Parkinson's disease, it is also in dementia with Lewy bodies, as well as in multiple system atrophy. And the other, the other protein that I want to highlight is tau, that you can see in PSP and in corticobasal degeneration. And this is very important because now we're starting to, to have some ways of radiologically identify these proteins, so when, when it is alive, we may be able to say this person truly has progressive supranuclear palsy, or perhaps in the future we still do not have a tracer for alpha-synuclein, but hopefully we will. We will be able to say this person does have Parkinson's disease, not just based on clinical uh, diagnosis. And more importantly, there are treatments that are specific for these proteins or against these proteins. And that is what is the relevance of making this diagnosis earlier 
and trying to see if we can slow the progression of the disease. I'll get to that later on. So as I was saying before, uh, there is a change in the diagnosis of Parkinson's disease. And the first thing that has changed is we do not include at all the postural instability as a part of the main features of the disease. And the main reason for that is that postural instability is not an early feature of Parkinson's disease. It's a late feature. So what are the features of Parkinson's disease? Well, the main one is, again, slowness. Without the slowness that you saw in this patient, you cannot diagnose the disease. And you need either tremor, that is a tremor at rest, as you see as well in this patient. So again, this tremor is a tremor that is at rest, that has uh, certain specific characteristics, the frequency. And usually it's not postural, but it can happen as you keep the posture for a while. And that's why at times people say, well, it does happen when I sustain uh, my newspaper. And that is one of the explanations for that as well as stiffness. So it's slowness with either tremor or stiffness. And then we have supportive criteria, criteria that makes this mostly a disorder that is Parkinson's disease. And these are very important characteristics. And the first one is the dramatic response to dopaminergic therapy. In Parkinson's disease, the main neurons that die that have to do with the motor system are dopaminergic neurons. Those neurons are in the substantia nigra, that is in the back of the brain, in the brainstem, and these neurons um, deliver dopamine, that is what makes the motor circuit work. So if we do not have dopamine, it doesn't work so well, and that's kind of what happens in a car when you don't have gas or you don't have oil. So you have to put it in in order to function, and here is the same thing. Because the response is very important, without that good response, we cannot be sure that somebody has Parkinson's disease. So the response is important. Another feature that is important is the rest tremor. However, you may have Parkinson's disease without it. We used to wait until people would say, well, they would have levodopa dyskinesias, that is an excess of movement that may happen several years after because the neurons become very sensitive to dopamine. And I'll explain that better later. But what is new is that now we are including things that are non-motor. For example, lack of smell. And we are also including uh, something that is uh, the denervation of the heart that is a feature that occurs early in Parkinson's disease. Fortunately, there are no symptoms out of that, but yes, we can see it if we do a scan as, uh, that is uh, MIBG uh, uh, scan uh, that is for the sympathetic uh, denervation um, that we can capture, and here is what we would see normally, and this is what we see in Parkinson's disease. So we do not see uh, the sympathetic neurons. 
But as in everything, it's not just what is there, but also it's important to exclude symptoms or features that we don't see in Parkinson's disease. And here they are. For example, the absence to respond to high doses of levodopa when there are moderate uh, disease. So if the symptoms are there and they are moderate, the person should respond. If he doesn't respond, that makes us feel this is not Parkinson's disease. Similarly, if the person is taking medication that is blocking uh, the receptors of dopamine, then there is no dopamine, and so that could be uh, leading to uh, symptoms that look Parkinsonian, but it's not Parkinson's disease. And I'll show you that in a minute as well as dementia, as well as uh, cerebellar features, and I'll show you all these things that I have here in a minute. Here is one of those. So we were saying that we need to exclude medications. This would be one of the secondary causes of Parkinsonism, and these are common medications. Uh, neuroleptics are, are used when there are, at times, uh, problems with mood or psychosis, and uh, they're commonly used in psychiatry, so it is important to know that these medications can lead to a Parkinsonism, and we cannot make the diagnosis unless several months have passed and the person is not taking the medication. But it can also happen with other medications, for example, Reglan, that is a medication for the GI system. So it's a common medication. And so it can happen that somebody gets it for surgeries and then they develop those symptoms and they don't know why they're walking slow and that could be one of the causes. So this is not Parkinson's disease. Then there are other movements. For example, this one that is an incoordination of the movement. This is what we call the cerebellar symptoms. And these are symptoms that are not part of Parkinson's disease. So when we see them present, we realize this is not Parkinson's disease. And that's what is important to go to a specialist that can distinguish all these different movements. Then if there are problems with the movements of the eyes, that's another thing that uh, makes the diagnosis uh, different. And in this case, makes the diagnosis of progressive supranuclear palsy. This is, in fact, the first patient that was described with this disease. And you can see that the patient can follow horizontally that pen. However, he cannot do that in the vertical direction. And he can do it when the examiner moves the head um, and the head goes down and the eyes go up, as in a doll, and that's what is called the doll's head maneuver. So that shows us that the lesions are above the motor nuclei, and that's what is called supranuclear palsy, and that's why the disease is called like that. Uh, this is another patient that has something similar to that. Um, and you can see that he is closing his eyes because, in general, they have difficulties. Um, and he cannot do it voluntarily either. So that's another feature that is not part of the illness. Well, we talked about dopamine that is produced 
and dopamine goes into the basal ganglia. So normally, this is what we would see. That is, when we do a DAT scan, and that DAT scan shows this kind of a, what we call a coma. This is normally. And what happens in, in Parkinson's disease, or Parkinsonism in general, is that this area of, of the basal ganglia doesn't receive dopamine, and so it is abnormal. And that's how we diagnose. And particularly in Parkinson's disease, we see that it's asymmetric. But this doesn't help us to say somebody, someone has Parkinson's disease. It only helps us say, to say that they have a neurodegenerative disease that goes with Parkinsonism. So it's not necessary for the diagnosis. It just helps when we have some doubts or when someone is taking medication that are blockers and we want to see, do they truly have Parkinson's disease? So we said false and postural instability is not a feature. So someone that is wheelchair bound in a year, two years, three years, is not common in Parkinson's disease. This is very unusual. This is not a disease that progresses so fast. There is also other features that are not typical of Parkinson's disease and that should make us think that there is another disease and this is, for example, when there, is, there are contractures and, uh, of, the, of, a, of a limb, as in this patient. So these are the motor symptoms. What about the non-motor symptoms? Well, they're very important. In fact, some patients feel that the non-motor features are more important than the motor symptoms. And depression or anxiety may appear even before the motor symptoms and may be part of 40, 50% of the patients, so it's common. Constipation is common. Enacting the dreams, what we call REM behavior disorder, is common. Normally, when we are dreaming, we do not move. But here, we are acting out those dreams, and particularly those dreams are usually uh, bad dreams, cognitive disturbances, are problems that do occur in Parkinson's disease. It occurs early. At times, it's just what we call a frontal problem, a frontal executive dysfunction. Uh, that is, functions that normally an executive has. That is, multitasking, planning. All those functions may be somehow impaired, and the person realizes that. But with the course of the illness, uh, it may happen that someone has dementia. Dementia is five times more frequent in Parkinson's disease than in the general population. And as I said before, dementia may occur early, and that's the dementia with Lewy bodies that we had it differently, uh, as a different disease, or late, uh, that is what we call Parkinson's disease and dementia. And nowadays, it is kind of thought that this may be a spectrum of the same Lewy body disease that I'll talk to you about in a few minutes. Decrease of blood pressure when standing. When we stand up, our blood pressure goes up. If it falls down, that is abnormal. There is not enough blood going to the brain, and the person can have a syncopal event. That is not uh, a feature that occurs early in Parkinson's disease, but it can occur late. 
in advanced disease. So we were talking about the Lewy body, and the Lewy body is this, what you see here, that is that particular uh, structure that, that is there inside the cell, in the cytoplasm, and was described by Lewy, um, and is typical of this disease. It was discovered later on that, that inside that Lewy body, there is alpha-synuclein. It is constituted by alpha-synuclein. And we thought for many, many years, even when I was in medical school, that the disease would occur here in the midbrain, in the substantia nigra. But in fact, that's not the case. That's not where it starts. So what we have learned is that initially, this is the amount of levodopa. The amount of levodopa is normal, but there are Lewy bodies in the gut. So that's the first area that is affected in the disease. Also, another first area is the olfactory bulb, and it is thought that perhaps that has to do with environment. You know, things come through the, maybe related to what we smell or we eat. And so the first few symptoms are the, the lack of smell and constipations, or may well be those symptoms. We talked about the lack of innervation of the heart. We talked about the enacting of the dreams. And so that seems like the disease would occur first here in the gut, and it goes to uh, the brainstem, and then it starts going up. And so these are all areas where um, the disease is occurring, but there are no motor symptoms then. And eventually, um, that is when the motor symptoms occur. But when they occur, there are 50% of the neurons in the substantia nigra that are dead. And in the areas that have to do with the basal ganglia, there is 80% of the dopamine that is lost. So when we are clinically able to say somebody has Parkinson's disease, the disease has advanced significantly. So this is what uh, enacting the dreams would be. This is from the internet. Uh, but I thought it was a good example. It's a severe example. There are less severe examples, and it could be someone just talking in their dreams. Uh, that would be part of the enacting of the, of the dreams. Here, this person obviously is upset and is trying to uh, fight whatever it is that they are dreaming about. And this is dangerous for the partner as well as for the patient. So this is not normal. Many people come to us and tell us they have had this for 10 years, 15 years, 20 years. It's not normal and can be treated. So we can say that um, when the disease has all these symptoms that I just mentioned, this is what we call prodromal Parkinson's disease because it occurs before the motor symptoms of Parkinson's disease. That would be the real Parkinson's disease. 
So we consider that there are three stages, a preclinical stage in which the, we can find that the neurons are dead. For example, if we do a DAT scan in somebody that has a family history um, of Parkinson's disease and happens to be willing to, have, to know whether they have the disease or not, and they don't have any symptoms whatsoever. So that's the preclinical. Then there is the prodromal, when they have constipation, lack of smell, uh, the enacting of the dream, and that is a very important symptom. That's, I would say, is the most important of all. So based on that, based on many studies, um, it has been uh, now defined what we call prodromal disease, and that is the presence of somebody, uh, and, and this is kind of a risk or a probability based on a Bayesian uh, type of analysis uh, or classification that considers the sex is more common Parkinson's disease in males than in females, the age is more common in the 60s than in the 50s, or in the 70s than in the 50s, the presence of some risk factors, for example, it is more common in people that have exposures to risk factors such as agriculture, pesticides. So all that is considered and has a percentage. And then the markers that the person may have, that is the lack of smell, the, the enacting of the dreams, depression, anxiety, constipation, or the imaging showing that uh, in the DAT scan there is uh, what I showed you before, a lack of uh, dopamine. So how important is the brain behavior disorder? Well, it's extremely important. There are several studies, some that are retrospective, but many others that are prospective, that say that people that have this enacting of the dream may have 50 to 91% of probabilities of getting a neurodegenerative disease. For example, this study uh, is a study from one of these authors, and basically it says that after having these symptoms of enacting the dreams, People in five years, 30% of the people may have either Parkinson's disease or may have uh, dementia with Lewy bodies or less commonly multiple system atrophy. It happens to be that at 10 years, this is something like uh, 70%, and at 15 years is 91%. So it is a real marker. And why we are interested in a real marker because if someone is going to have a disease, we want to stop it then, when they have almost no other symptoms. And we can treat it, and we can stop it with real treatments that are biological treatments that can slow the disease uh, at that time. So this is just to tell you that the, although this is relevant, it's not necessary, and I want to uh, stress that out. Summarizing, we have a preclinical stage where we have an abnormal imaging that I showed you before, and there could be other biomarkers such as genetics. We can have a prodromal period in which we have lack of smell, 
uh, enacting dreams or constipation or depression. We can have early symptoms of Parkinson's disease that are those plus the slowness with either stiffness or tremor. And we can have a disease that progresses and may have, in addition to those, uh, the presence of dyskinesias, excess of movements, as I showed you before, problems with cognition, problems with uh, the blood pressure. So now that you're experts in how to diagnose Parkinson's disease, so what investigations are we to do? So, well, we can do neuropsychological testing to see if someone does have or not cognitive problems, and that's a good baseline. Perhaps they have none, and then someone says, oh, now I do have memory problems. And you want to, rather than looking and compare it with the general population, it's better to compare it to, to yourself, how you were doing 10 years before, rather than how you're comparing to the general population. You can do genetics if there is a familial history and there is an interest in that, or there may be problems with uh, control of urine, or there may be control, uh, problems of controlling uh, the blood pressures, and we may need to do other testing. We can do also imaging, but none of these studies do allow us to say somebody has Parkinson's disease because the diagnosis is clinical. And as I told you, it is the presence of the slowness with the stiffness or tremor without the other characteristics that make us suspect other diseases. But we can do some imaging, and at times it does help. This would be like a normal brainstem. This is the mesencephalum, the midbrain, and this is the pons. Here is a patient that has PSP, and you can see that if you compare the mesencephalum of this here to this one, is very different. This is much smaller, and this is characteristic of PSP. Now, on the other hand, in multiple system atrophy, you can see that this pons is much smaller than this one or this one, and this is what characterizes multiple system atrophy. The midbrain is normal, but the pons is small. So pictures can help to guide us to one disease or another. Certainly, it can guide us in vascular Parkinsonism, and we can see all these white matter lesions that normally we do not see in the brain and can help us diagnose a disorder. We can do a test of olfaction to see if somebody has problems uh, with olfaction. But what I think is very interesting nowadays, and this is from now on is experimental, people are looking at what happens in the gut. So here is the first report, and it is of patients that actually had Parkinson's disease, and they had had biopsies of the colon several years before when they did not have Parkinson's disease, and they look at the colon biopsy, and they found that actually there was alpha-synuclein, that protein deposited there. So it helps because it helps diagnose the disease. In addition to these column biopsies, another possibility that is being tried, and this is being tried uh, particularly in the Mayo Clinic, is to do submandibular gland biopsies because the alpha-synuclein deposits all over the GI system and also deposits in the, in the, um, in the glands that have to do with salivation. But as I said before, or initially, 
it would be ideal that we could look into the brain and say, oh my God, what are these things there? And that is exactly what happens with ligands that get uh, binding to the proteins in the brain. And that would be phenomenal if we could have specific ligands that bind to the brain. And this is in particular tau. And so now we're doing these studies in which we're looking to see if these binding, uh, these ligands are good enough to diagnose progressive supranuclear palsy. And people are searching for the same for alpha-synuclein, but that's still not uh, found yet. So what's wrong with the brains of people that have Parkinson's disease? Well, we talked about the substantia nigra. Here you can see it. This is a normal substantia nigra, and it has melanin, and that's what it is, uh, so black. Uh, and you can see that there is a loss of blackness here, and it's smaller. And that's what happens in the brain of someone that has Parkinson's disease, and we're looking macroscopically into the brain. If we look under the microscope, this is what we would see in the substantia nigra, a lot of neurons. And this is what we see here, devastated, not many cells. And this is, again, the Lewy body that is what you would see it with specific stains. So what would be the risk factors for this disease? Well, um, it could be a single gene that, has, that leads to the disease. It could be environmental factors that either uh, lead to the disease or protect you from the disease. Or it could be many genes that have something to do uh, and lead to the disease, and I'll get into that. So there are many mechanisms that are proposed to be related to the development of Parkinson's disease. One is oxidative stress. As we age, we have a lot of, in the mitochondria, we have a lot of enzymes that scavenge and get rid of the bad products but apparently those are not functioning as well. And so oxidative stress is kind of what is happening and that is damaging to the cell and is damaging to the proteins, alpha-synuclein, and alpha-synuclein gets completely uh, a different structure, gets a different conformation. If it was like this, gets like that, and that leads to aggregation of this protein that leads to the death of the cell. It could be that there is a mitochondrial dysfunction or that there is inflammation and all these things happen. Uh, or there is something else that is leading to the aggregation of these proteins, alpha-synuclein in particular. Or there is a system that is the ubiquitin proteosomal system that also destroys all the bad proteins. And if there is a lot of aggregated uh, alpha-synuclein and it's too much, the, the system cannot lead with that. And so the cell starts to accumulate all these aggregated proteins and then it dies. So with the genes, the thing is a little bit complex. And it's a little bit complicated, but I'm going to try to do it in one slide and see if we can understand a little bit of it. The names are com complicated because, well, they do not correspond well, but I'm not going to get into that. But there are some genes that lead to 
Parkinson's disease in families, and they are dominant. That is, uh, if one person has it, 50% of the family members of the children will have it. That's a dominant disease. Or it may be recessive, and if these are penetrant genes, because at times you may have a gene but it's not penetrant and so you don't transmit it to anybody, uh, or if you do, it doesn't do much, um, then what happens is that if two parents have a recessive gene, then a quarter of the kids may have the disease. We have this uh, alpha-synuclein gene, is the first one that was discovered in families in Greece, and it's, it happens several ways. It can happen mutations, it can happen that duplicates, it can happen that it triplicates, and it's interesting because the duplications give to families that have Parkinson's disease alone, and the triplications, three times the alpha-synuclein genes, lead to families that have Parkinson's disease and may have dementia. And that's why the whole story about what is, if dementia with Lewy bodies is part or not of the disease, is one issue that is being discussed. In addition to that, there are other genes that are for dystonia that at times can present with Parkinsonism, and there are others that have to do with uh, ataxias, uh, gait disorders, uh, that also may present with Parkinsonism. That's why it's complicated. And then we have many other genes that are maybe more common in the population, and several of them may be necessary for someone to have the disease. The best way to understand this is that are rare variants that have a large effect size and really can cause the disease. And that is this alpha-synuclein gene, for example. So if you have it, it's rare that you have it, but then your, the chances for your family member to have the disease is high. Then you have genes that are very common. Many, pay, many people may have it, but they do not have a, they have a very low risk. So you may have it and you may never have the disease, period. And then there are other genes that have an intermediate uh, frequency and an intermediate uh, effect. What about the environment? So there are factors that increase the risk and others that decrease the risk. What does increase the risk? Pesticides, metals, industrial solvents, head injury. What decreases the risk? Cigarette smoking, not recommended, not recommended, but it does do that. Uh, we still try to figure out what is it in the cigarette smoking that is doing that. Caffeine, antioxidants, estrogen, and that's why it's less frequent in women, and perhaps anti-inflammatory medications. So those would be the, the factors that decrease the risk. Of the factors that increase the risk, the important one is truly pesticides. Many pesticides are neurotoxic. I don't know if you remember, but in, there was in California many years ago, like in the mid 
80s, some patients that were drug addicts that started with Parkinsonism and it happened like from one day to another very acutely. And there was like an epidemic of that. And then there was one investigator, Dr. Langston, that was a clinical researcher and investigated. And all that led to a <clears throat> lab in a garage of someone that was trying to do meperidine, some opioid, and had the wrong recipe and uh, did this uh, MPTP that once it gets into the body, gets converted into MPP plus that is very toxic and kills dopaminergic neurons. So from that, the only silver lining is that from that experience, we learn that there are uh, ways of uh, causing the disease in animals that can lead to help understand a little bit of the disease. But there are many toxins that do have uh, the similar structure, like paraquat, and there are even rotenon that up to recently was in the market, and uh, it does induce a model of Parkinson's disease in, in the animals. And there are some studies that suggest, um, case control studies that suggest that paraquat, organophosphates, and orochlorines can lead to Parkinson or are associated with Parkinson's, Parkinson's disease. So what it means is that the person that has been in touch with those particular toxins has higher risk of having Parkinson's disease. So how does the disease spread? So now we have that for whatever reasons, the genetics or the environmental, uh, we have these proteins in, that are normal in the, in the cells and they change their formation. So let's say that they have that oval uh, format and they become in a triangular format. And once they have that format, that conformation, they, once they start aggregating one with the other. And what we have learned is that the disease spread from connections from one neuron to the other. So these other neurons that are here are completely okay. Their proteins are fine, but because they are connected, what occurs is that the proteins that were there become infected in some ways. It's not a real infection, uh, but, and that's what is, it's not really a prion, it's prion-like, because it's not an infection. But what it is, is that it changes the, the format of, of the protein. And this is very important because first, we can find these, uh, these abnormal proteins and try to diagnose the disease early. So that can help us for diagnosis. And another thing that is helpful is for the possibility of treating. Maybe we can get rid of this and then we can get rid of the spreading of the disease. I'll get back to that in a second. 
So how do we manage the symptoms? Let's talk about first the motor symptoms. So someone comes and we evaluate and we see if we go first with a non-pharmacological therapy. We do education. Uh, we try to uh, provide the appropriate support. We recommend highly that they do exercise because exercise is extremely important. It's extremely important for Parkinson's disease. It's important for the heart. It's important for the brain in general. So exercise is good. Do it. So we recommend that highly. And then we see if someone requires or not uh, some other therapy, physical therapy, speech therapy. And then we look at, do they need pharmacological therapies? And what is really, uh, it would be ideal if we have a neuroprotective drug that we don't have yet, but we're working on it. And certainly we look at the functional impairment. Is there a functional impairment? Is this person affected that, let's say, they are working and they are not able to work well? I mean, we have a patient of ours that is a dentist, and so if he doesn't take the medication, even if the symptoms are minor, he cannot really work. So we treat. But let's say that somebody works in the field and feels that he's doing perfect. I mean, he has a little bit of a tremor, but who cares? It's not affecting their life. So we don't treat that. And we discuss the tr when the person feels that they want a treatment. So if they don't treatment, we continue to monitor. If they need a treatment, then we decide what kind of a treatment they need. And we have MAOB inhibitors. Uh, that are uh, medications that inhibit drug, inhibit enzymes that kill the dopamine or destroy the dopamine. We have dopamine agonists that are synthetic uh, dopamine that can be used. And we have levodopa that when it gets into the brain converts into dopamine. And according to several factors, age and cognition, etc., we decide conjunctly what is the best treatment and do that. And as the disease progresses, we need to add one or the other uh, drugs to help out. But it may come to a time that all those drugs are not as helpful, and then it becomes necessary to go to deep brain stimulation. Let me talk about the new drugs that appear in the market. One of them is Ritari. This is a medication that is very relevant Unfortunately, very expensive. Uh, but if levodopa gives you, this is a, the peak or the concentration of levodopa in the blood, and this is the time, and it gives you a peak and it really uh, lasts between an hour and a half or so, uh, you have, and even the CR or the uh, one with uh, COM inhibitors, uh, the, the uh, salivo, would also prolong a little bit, but never too much. When you use this, this formulation that is immediate release and extended release, it lasts between four to five hours. So it is very important. And, and the important part of this story is that we have learned that it is important to have continuous stimulation. That's how the brain works. It doesn't work with pulsatile delivery of a drug. So even if it is expensive, it is a good thing, uh, we believe. Unfortunately, we don't have studies yet 
to show that is better one from the other because that hasn't been done. What is being done is in, in patients and, and it shows that if this is uh, an improvement of 6% that levodopa may do or the other drugs, this one could be a 13%, for example, just to give an overall idea. Then there is this gel um, of uh, dopamine that can be given through, uh, through the stomach and it's like a pump that delivers this, this uh, dopamine and it's, it's like it would be an insulin pump in some ways. And then we have the uh, deep brain stimulation and uh, it is in the OR, the patient normally it is sedated and we can look at the different waves to tell us where the, where the lead is. Uh, this is a patient that is off, and you could see that, that tremor at rest. So he doesn't have any medications. By the way, this is uh, from Metronix, that is a producer of, of the stimulator. Um, you can see that it works with very small steps, gets stuck to the floor, and that is uh, what we call freezing. But when the stimulator is on, it's incredible, isn't it? So it is a major change, a major change. So it is, it is a resource for the motor symptoms. However, it does not treat the non-motor symptoms. So what were the non-motor symptoms? So we need to treat the anxiety, we need to treat the depression, we need to treat the cognitive problems, the enacting of the dreams, if there is blood pressure that drops, the constipation, the urinary problems. So we talked about that um, aggregated protein, remember, that, that accumulates. And so studies have shown that giving antibodies against alpha-synuclein improves significantly the disease in animal models, and nowadays these studies are being conducted. And there is a search for vaccines for against alpha-synuclein. So there's an this is extremely exciting because now we're truly searching for things that can truly stop the disease. And there are several companies, as you can see, that are doing the first phases of the studies. We will have one coming up uh, soon. That is the Biogen phase one, and that's the first phase of a study. Then there are interesting things, such as this medication that was reported by investigators at uh, Georgetown University, Tastigna or Nilotinib. Uh, this is a medication that is a, a chemotherapy that is used in leukemia, and it was used in patients with Parkinson's disease and dementia, and the patients improved. 10 out of 12 improved significantly. So now they're doing some studies to better understand this and see if it truly is, it, it, it works. Because an open-label study doesn't truly tell us much because it is, uh, you know, there is a lot of what we call placebo effect. You, you know, you're putting under a medication and you want to get better. So you're going to get better. And that ex occurs with any disease independent of the severity of it. So it does occur as well in Parkinson's disease. What about stem cells? Everybody's asking about stem cells. Well, they're not so new. 
they provide the potential of an ex a way of providing the continuous delivery of dopamine, but it's just dopamine. And as I mentioned to you, dopamine is just one part of the story that has to do with the motor symptoms that we can manage pretty well nowadays uh, with several options. And one of the things that is very concerning to me is that it doesn't reverse the progression of the disease despite what some people say. And there is many people that are paying money to, end, to get this, these stem cells and there's no study that shows that it works. So if you're gonna be in a study with stem cells, make sure that is a well-designed study that you do not pay because research, we do not pay, period. So you shouldn't pay on this one either. So now let me tell you uh, briefly uh, what are the things that we are doing at UCSD in our center. We have many studies, some that, are due, that we're looking and are observation studies, and we're looking at cognition, and we're following almost 200 patients uh, Prospectively, we're looking at uh, rehabilitation of cognition. We're looking at trying to search for biomarkers. We are having studies that are therapeutic trials in which we are using medications that may slow disease progression. Uh, Isradapine is one that is ongoing, but we have a new one that is starting now. Um, it is being shown that uric acid has is low in Parkinson's disease, and that the progression of the disease is much faster in those people that have lower uh, levels. So in animal models, it has been shown that it's better to have as well higher levels. So based on that, there is a new uh, study that is opening that is funded by the NIH and it, by the Parkinson's study group, that is to use uh, inosine. That is a drug that is an, uh, actually it's a prodrug. There is also other medications that are being experimented for people that have fluctuations. And I think that you can go directly to the website and look and see if there's anything that could be of interest. So I think it is important that people get treatment uh, and the WHO uh, said that anybody that has Parkinson's disease or Parkinsonian disorder should be uh, evaluated by a movement disorder specialist, that it is their right. And why is that? Because there is an earlier diagnosis that the treatments are evidence-based, there is more favorable prognosis, and there is the, ability, the possibility of entering into therapeutic trials and uh, to get a better uh, customized education about the disease. The conclusions. So now we have learned uh, how, what are the changes in how we define Parkinson's disease. You're gonna be better than your own physicians. Includes motor and non-motor symptoms. We have learned what is prodromal Parkinson's disease. We have learned that the disease starts in the gut and then progresses into the brainstem. We have learned that there is a search for new ways of diagnosing the disease, 
by biopsies, for example, and search for uh, imaging markers, that there are new prospects for treatments of the motor uh, symptoms as well as non-motor symptoms, and that there are several possibilities to slow disease progression. What is your take-home message? Having slowness, falling, tremors is not caused by aging, all right? Not caused by aging. So if you have any of that, go to the doctor. These problems need to be investigated. When Parkinsonism better to be evaluated by a movement disorder and ideally in a center of excellence. And if there is Parkinsonism, we need to determine if it is Parkinson's disease or an alternative disorder. We learn as well that enacting the dreams is not normal and that it can be treated and it may be a predictor of a neurodegenerative diseases and that there are multiple treatment approaches for Parkinson's disease, that the treatment should be comprehensive, personalized, include education, rehabilitation, medications, surgical options, that exercise is key for the brain, that there are several experimental treatments that may slow disease progression. Thank you. So now is your time. Now you can ask questions. Some of the typicals are also part of the therapeutic trials we have. In fact, we are doing studies currently with antibodies against tau. That is one of the typical disorders, a typical uh, progressive supranuclear palsy and corticobasal degeneration. And we have a trial, two trials actually, that are currently ongoing with antibodies against uh, tau, and we have a third trial that is uh, going to be starting soon that is with a uh, potent uh, anti-inflammatory salsalate. So yes, we, it is for atypicals as well. I just listed what is in Parkinson's. I didn't want to, I didn't have more space, pretty much. The question is, is there any link between uh, essential tremor and Parkinson's disease? Uh, well, it, it is thought that there is a link. Uh, we don't know exactly what the link is, but Parkinson's disease is much more frequent in people that have essential tremor. But we don't know what are the reasons for it yet. Uh, but certainly that, that is the case. Yes? Uh, I have a friend that had very much shaking he had something done with his brain, with electrodes. Uh, that wasn't mentioned. Is that a common thing? And it helped him for a long period of time. This was mentioned, actually. It was a deep brain stimulation that I show you that picture of this person that, that uh, was uh, actually having all the tremors and then he got the surgery. I, maybe I didn't mention it right. And I'm glad that you're asking the question. What about, he has a friend that had a lot of tremors and got some electrodes in the brain and improved what, that I didn't mention that. And in fact, I did mention that's deep brain stimulation, uh, but I may not have been clear enough, so I really thank you for asking the question again. Uh, deep brain stimulation is the 
what we use to make the motor circuit work better, um, and uh, what uh, occurs is that we put a simulator that is like a pacemaker, for example, is in the chest, and then there are some leads that go to the brain, um, and that was that person that was getting surgery lying down there, and uh, eventually those uh, leads lead to the target areas in the in the brain, and when that is connected and and uh, adjusted appropriately, the response is in general extremely good. So that's that person that was having difficulty walking, and then suddenly you saw him uh, that was doing phenomenal. So the question is whether um, uh, I didn't mention anything about eating and uh, that it, she was thinking about it when uh, I heard, uh, she heard about the pesticides. So we, ha we don't have real good evidence that there is anything that you eat that truly uh, makes or leads to Parkinson's disease or that, on the other hand, protects. Um, regarding organic food, in the past, um, rutenone is an uh, insecticide that was used uh, for organic food because it's, it's organic. Um, so at a certain point, it was used. It's not used any longer. So even if we thought that it was great to eat organic food, you know, there's always something that, that may not be as good as we think. Uh, but nowadays, that's not, that's not an issue. But there's nothing that we know of that truly uh, is, is good. On the other hand, we can say that it's always good to eat well, balanced. I mean, that's good for the brain, that's good for the heart, so why not do it? Um, but there is nothing specific that uh, works for Parkinson's disease. How important is, is exercise uh, for the brain regarding imagination and creativity? Um, I don't know if it has been studied uh, truly. The, uh, I'm not aware of any studies that have looked at exercise and, and creativity. Um, but we certainly have looked at exercise and motor performance, and there is an improvement that is significant, without any doubt. Um, there are studies that are being developed to try to look into how uh, the, if the brain functions better in cognition when, when you do exercises versus not doing it. But that is, is, uh, is a pilot study that is still has not been done in Parkinson's disease. But it has been done in, the, in aging, and it's a good thing. So exercise is good. So the question is if uh, you could if a physician can look at the colon and, uh, and see if a person has Parkinson's disease or the, if they don't have any symptoms, if it is pre-motor Parkinson's disease. Um, it is an experimental, uh, it's, it's experimental at this point, but it looks like it's a, something that may end up being uh, relevant because we do get colon biopsies as we age, so it would be very simple to take a sample and then analyze it. So it wouldn't be invasive in that sense. 
So two questions. One is if boxing is good and there is a new therapy that is based on boxing and uh, there is some research that seems to suggest that it's very, it's very good and, and patients love it. So I can say from my own experience with my patients, they love it and they like to do it and they improve. So yes, it is a good thing. Um, and the, the other question was, uh, periodic if periodic-like movements um, that, can, that can be treated with uh, medi dopamine medication is associated with Parkinson's. Well, it is associated, yes. It's more frequent in Parkinson's disease. But there is not that relation that I told you regarding restless legs and conversion into a neurodegenerative disease. That we have not seen, it hasn't been studied in that way. So as powerful as it is, enacting your dreams, restless legs is not being shown that it's gonna convert into anything yet. So the question is, how can we differentiate dementia with Lewy bodies from Alzheimer's disease or frontotemporal dementias? So, Dementia with Lewy bodies is a disorder that presents usually with a dementia that is completely different than that of Alzheimer's disease. If in Alzheimer's disease we have a significant problem with memory, we cannot remember things that we have done, what happens in dementia with Lewy bodies is that the problem is the executive functioning. So the person has difficulty planning, the person has difficulty sequencing, the person has difficulty multitasking, and it has problems with memory, but the problems are different, is retrieving the information. So it is different to ask someone what, who call, and someone say, I have no idea, nobody call, versus who call, and I said, oh, I forgot to tell you that your aunt called. So it's a different thing. So one person can encode the information but has difficulty spontaneously saying it, but if you give them a clue, they can say it. And that's the difference with frontal, the, the frontal dementia, part of the executive dysfunction. So in uh, dementia with Lewy bodies, there is a hallucinations that occur early on in the course of the illness. There could be significant confusion or lack of functioning uh, at certain points and then a significant improvement at others. So there is a clear changes that do occur. They may occur some Parkinsonism that may occur earlier or later um, so there could be some Parkinson's disease, and that's why they may be misdiagnosed, because the Parkinson's is what first presented. Uh, they may have also problems with uh, blood pressure control. So that's dementia with Lewy bodies. Alzheimer's disease is memory, memory, memory. Uh, that's a major problem. There's no problems with hallucinations early on. Could be late, but not early. Um, they, they could be, there is no motor problems early on either. So none of these other things that I mentioned that are typical of dementia with Lewy body are present in Alzheimer's disease. It's more a memory disorder problem. And in frontal dementia, 
In addition to uh, the multitasking, the planning, there is also a behavioral change that is very dramatic. So the person uh, may do things that are completely different than what they have done in the past. Uh, for example, uh, they may uh, start uh, buying things in a, that they have never, uh, you know, for no reason whatsoever. Uh, or they may do things, I had a patient of mine that start kind of abusing a, uh, someone uh, that was completely out of character for this person. So they do things that are kind of psychiatric uh, abnormalities, or they become completely uh, uh, apathetic, completely apathetic. They just want to do nothing. And they have no insight at all that all this is happening. So a patient of mine, when I asked her, so what are your problems? She says, what problems? And so the husband said, well, you know what the problems are. And says, I don't have any problems. So he says that I have a problem, but I have no problems, you know. So, <laughs> so it starts all these things that, you know, um, are difficult. So they're really very different. It is easy to diagnose them early on. When you have at the end, unless you have a very good history, it's very hard to diagnose these things. So the question is, what happens if you bike? Bike is, uh, can people improve? Certainly. Biking or any exercise is good for Parkinson's disease, as we mentioned, yes. Um, and um, in fact, it's not just good for Parkinson's, it's good for mood. People can be depressed and do improve after doing uh, significant exercise. There is an article published um, in, in doing Tai Chi in Parkinson's disease with a significant improvement. So yes, exercise in any shape or form. Uh, there are studies that show that tango dancing is good. So, you know, if you're gonna ask me, is any, anything. Hasn't probably everything been studied, so tennis, I don't know, but I'm, I would assume it's gonna be the same as everything else. So the question is, um, if the brain uh, needs a steady level of dopamine? And the answer is yes. Um, all the studies show that if you don't have steady levels, this is not good for the brain. So people have m more significant complications out of that. So uh, it wasn't, so it is, that's why dopamine agonists, for example, was used for many years as the major thing um, because it, it provides a steady level. And that even if they're not as good or beneficial in the sense of effectiveness and may have more side effects than the levodopa, the beautiful thing was that it provided a very steady level. So yes, steady level is, is very good. So the question is if spinal stenosis or problems in the, in the spine can is a factor, a risk factor for Parkinson's, and it isn't. So this is good. <laughs> uh, we don't know for sure, but I think that the, the exercises that truly are more relevant are those that increase your heart rate. So, you know, if you're doing passive movements, that, that is not exercise. So it is things, so 
it's not just stretching. No, fatigue is common in Parkinson's as well. So is fatigue common in Parkinson's or is only in MSA, multiple system atrophy? No, fatigue is common in uh, all these disorders because it's, you know, uh, if you don't have enough levo- in- dopamine in the system, you, it's like walking with, uh, a, with a lot of uh, things in your back or, you know, with uh, backpacks. Um, and so it is, uh, it is much harder, so you feel fatigue. We don't know a lot about why fatigue occurs, but certainly it does occur. In, in MSA, multiple system atrophy, there are two causes for fatigue. One could be related to the dopamine, but there is another cause that is the low blood pressure. So if the blood pressure is very low, you are extremely fatigued. So that's another cause. Does anemia play into the fatigue? Yes, it plays into fatigue, but it doesn't, the, anemia is not part of the Parkinsonian disorders. It's not a typical thing. Yes, so the, the idea that mindfulness can be helpful in Parkinson's disease, um, I certainly agree. Uh, in fact, that's our current study. We're looking at uh, the effects of mindfulness stress reduction program in Parkinson's disease. So I fully support the idea that mindfulness is helpful. But that is not being shown yet. That's what we want to show. So. Yes, mindfulness and yoga, that is the mindfulness stress reduction program, I believe is very helpful. At least uh, we did a pilot study when I was at the University of Louisville, and it was very helpful. So we're trying to put together uh, another pilot here to submit a grant soon. Hopefully it's funded, and then I can give you a response. But so far it hasn't been demonstrated. So the question is, since Parkinson's starts in the gut, if we correct the situation in the gut, would Parkinson's be resolved? I think that's a great question, and I think that is something that, is, uh, something that people is look- are looking into. In fact, uh, uh, because, I mean, there are studies in animal models in which... Um, the gut is connected to the brainstem through the vagus nerve. And so in animal models, uh, they cut the vagus nerve and they can see that the disease does not spread. So then they look into uh, people that, that had uh, those vagotomies, that it was a treatment that was done in the past when people had ulcers in the stomach. And s- it's, there is a controversy, uh, the data that were presented, but a group say that, that people that had the vagotomy had less Parkinson's, and the other one said that it, it is not clear that that's the case. So it isn't a resolve, but I think that goes into what you're saying. And perhaps changing the diet may end up being something relevant because maybe we change the, the flora in some ways that, uh, that uh, the alpha-synuclein doesn't deposit, but we don't know that. So those would be all good areas to study. So the questions are very interesting, but I cannot resolve any of them. Uh, 
the first one is whether uh, uh, the flora is different in Parkinson's disease, and, and there is controversial data about that, and it, it's unresolved. The second question is whether um, uh, the gut is truly the first place or it isn't. Uh, that's the first place we know, and uh, there is a phenomenal researcher, uh, Brack and Brack in, in Germany, um, that had the patience of cutting the brains of 400 people in very thin slices um, and was able to do what I show you, that I didn't mention that it was his name, and I should have. Um, and he showed, in fact, that there were all these faces and also showed that the first stage was in the gut and the other first stage was in the in the olfactory bulb. Those are good points of entry. Whether that is the first place or not, I do not know. But it is, the theory looks very convincing and there's a lot of data supportive of that. So it is convincing for several reasons. One, because both are points of entry. So there is a, this dual theory that uh, a toxin can enter and go to the gut and go to the olfactory bulb uh, at the same time. Um, and then the other important fact is that because it is being shown that the disease is spreading uh, in that way, that it's one neuron connected to the other, and then we can see alpha-synuclein all over from the gut to the brainstem, uh, and in these other different uh, steps. So it seems like there is that clear you know, spread of the disease. So I think that it's extremely exciting to see at this point that we're learning how the disease is spreading and where it's starting. Uh, there may be errors, and you never know, you know. The theory of today could be completely van tomorrow. But at least it makes a lot of sense. Um, and there is a lot of supportive data, clinical, as well as in, in animal models and in the actual brain and body. He did look at uh, the colon of people as well. So there's a lot of supportive data. Uh, so it is very um, credible. And the fact that you can think that if it's spreading like that, you have therapies that can, can actually uh, grab those uh, agglutinated or aggregated alpha-synuclein and stop it from spreading, I think is incredibly exciting. I think this is a real moment that could be a paradigm shift in how uh, the disease is, is treated uh, in a way that could truly slow disease progression. So it's, it's a very good moment to live, yes. Well, that's the question of the century. So the question is, uh, when do I estimate that we're gonna find a cure for Parkinson's disease? Uh, I wish it would be tomorrow, but I don't think it will be tomorrow. But I think we're certainly much closer than I could have thought about it many years ago. You know, it seems like we were scratching surface and we were thinking about many different things, but not all of them would make a lot of sense. But now it seems like all of it is like 
we're putting that puzzle together. So it is an exciting time because you're feeling that, hey, there could be a possibility of, of true cure. Uh, perhaps we can see it in 10 years. I do not know. Uh, perhaps it's earlier than that. But things are moving very, very fast. Well, thank you very much. This was wonderful. Thank you for all your wonderful questions. You've been a very active audience, and uh, you have participated in an incredible ways. So thank you, thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.